turn our attention to to Mr. Damien Barr. It is a delight to, to finally have you at Resonance because we, we've been emailing for a long, long time, haven't we? I know. It's like it's almost like we've been dating and now finally we've decided to meet each other and it's quite good. I'm very excited. <laughs> oh, it's quite good. That's your review. <laughs> I know. Well, I, I've, I was sort of dashing straight from another um, podcasting thing today. It's very today, impressive. So you swooped in. It's quite romantic. Oh, oh, was it? Was it dashing of yeah, me? Yeah, it was actually. <laughs> If if we were not like a lesbian and a gay man, this would be all very it could really exciting. Work. It could really work. <laughs> there may be a barrier there, but but hey, well, <laughs> let's talk um, about the book because you've just won Stonewall Writer of the Year, and it's it's had amazing feedback. I mean, it, did you imagine in your wildest dreams it would go this well? No, I didn't. I think it, I think if I did, I would probably be like a fantasist and borderline <laughs> yeah. psychopathic. I mean, I, you know, you kind of, I was writing in my shed on my own for years and years and years. And eventually I started to share it with people. And then, and you get some feedback and you get some sense of how people feel from it. Um, but, you know, it's like, a, it's like a message in a bottle. You write it, you send it out into the world and you don't know what's going to come back. Yeah. And, and, um, and it's great that reviewers have loved it. And it's absolutely, I was, I think, one of the proudest moments of my life winning the, the Stonewall Award. It was just yeah. incredible. Because that was just last week? Last week, yeah. yeah. And I really didn't expect to win. Um, so I wrote a speech on the back of a post-it note and got quite drunk. So uh, when I won and I had to give a speech, it was pretty short. And, and, so the, the back of a post-it note, that would be like the sticky side. Yeah, it was, yeah basically. It was, <laughs> it was sort of sticking to my hand. It was really grim. Um, but, it, but it was lovely. And, I, you know, that was... I think that was a kind of affirmation of um, all the people who get in touch. You know, people people write every day and say thank you for sharing wow. your, your story and telling my story. It's kind of a weird thing where you end up being a spokesperson for people. Yes, know. yeah, that is interesting because, um, of course, so many of us are Thatcher's children, whether yeah. whether we like it or not. Um, yeah. And you've said some very interesting things about how, of course, many of her policies, you know, had very damaging and difficult effects on our yeah. on our lives, particularly growing up gay, of yeah. course. Um, but you also say how she sort of provided an escape ladder for you and a way out of the life that you might have had. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, there's, I wouldn't ever try and defend Clause 288 because it's a no, pernicious who, hateful who piece would? of legislation. Well, people still do. I mean, <laughs> well, that's well, the sad thing. Actually, people just there need are to echoes of it, it in some schools now. Yeah, there are. Some scary. schools yeah. still have, have it on their books, the, yeah, the yeah. Uh, new charter schools, actually. Yes. But... Um, um, you know, so that was kind of awful and hateful. But what a lot of people don't know about Thatcher is that very early in her career, she voted to implement the Wolfenden Report. She voted to decriminalise yeah. homosexuality, and a lot of people don't know that. So she made a you know a very bold positive move, and then she made a hideous negative yeah. move. But aside from the politics, because the book isn't political, the book is about a wee boy growing up in the no, west no, of Scotland. Of course, it's about your growing up, um, which we talked about in detail with with Patrick. But she um, provided but... this idea that you know you could be be your own person. I think that was the mm. thing that was important for her. You know, you can. Be be your own person. Where you're going is more important than where you're from. Mm. Um, and she was different. She was a woman and amongst all those men and she had yeah. a kind of glamour. Um, and that made her stand out to me growing up. You yeah. know, she was she was she definitely was different. Well it was it was almost this omnipresence, wasn't it? I mean, you know, it's it's that sense of in your book, obviously it's not about the politics, because no. as kids we didn't really understand no. all of that anyway, but you've got fragments of her speeches that sort of begin each chapter and because she was always there on the news, it was it was just this very sort of constant thing, wasn't it? Well you couldn't 
I mean, you couldn't escape her. She was on every TV channel. She was in every newspaper. Um, I grew up in the most left-wing constituency in the country where the founder of the Labour Party was born. Yeah. She was hated where I was from. She was like a kind of political Myra Hindley. She was despised. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and I so, imagine you know, she was hated across most of Scotland, surely. She was, but I mean, really, it was most acute there. I mean, I, yeah. you know, it was really... I mean, you, I was allowed to swear about her as a kid. You know, that's yeah. how bad she was. You know, you could get away with a lot if you were doing it about her. <laughs> right, um, you could say anything. And she was invoked like the bogeyman. You know, if you don't do your homework, Maggie will get you. And, and it was Maggie's fault. Everything was Maggie's fault. And, and a lot of it was. You know, when my dad lost his job, that was Maggie's fault when she closed the steelworks and all sorts of things. Mm. So, um, you know, I, I understand why a lot of people sort of still feel angry about her. Um, but I just, you know, I, I wanted to sort of tell the story of what it was like at that time. And I don't think somebody growing up now would have a politician be as dominant. I don't think Cameron no, or Cameron Blair even def- would, you no, know, no, have no. that kind of saturation. You know. Yeah, perhaps is that something to do with the way news coverage and the internet, um, you know, has changed? There's so much footage of everything everywhere that one person can't possibly dominate every single channel because we have so many. That yeah, I think that that probably is true. Although, if you look at America, where they have just yes. as much kind of digital media, Barack Obama does have a much stronger profile there than, say, Cameron does does mm. here. Um, so, but I, I think you know, we'll, you know, we'll never see the the likes of her again. <laughs> yes, which many people who've been on this show would probably say is a good thing. Um, yeah. Yes, but, you know, I think there were a lot of interesting articles written when she did die. I mean, Russell Brand wrote a particularly interesting one Mm. sort of describing her as an an old lady and, you know, kind of frail old lady. Um, and, And also interestingly talked about you know, how we hold her up as this icon of feminism, but in some ways she was anything but because, you know, she smashed through the glass ceiling and women were sort of all scarred by the glass shards falling down beneath oh, her yeah. in a way. I mean, I, I certainly don't think that, you know, she did uh, very much actively to support women in her cabinet. And I did an event recently with Gillian Shepherd, who totally agreed with me about that. Oh, yeah. But the very fact is she was a woman and she ran this country and she had her finger on the nuclear button. And yeah. there aren't very many Western Democracies that you can point to and say that. So I am proud of the fact that in Britain we've had a woman prime minister, um, and hope that we will have again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting now. Probably the most powerful woman in in Europe and possibly in the world is Angela Merkel. Who's yes. a very different type of character, isn't she? Yeah, I mean, I th- I think that you know she, she gets called you know mummy and, and stuff like that in politics, and she and, and she likes it apparently. <laughs> um, but I you know I'm not sure you could have had Merkel without Thatcher. I wonder if Thatcher yeah. had to kind of blaze that trail. Possibly, yeah. Um, you know, before before we got to Merkel. Yeah. Well, take us back a bit to actually writing the story. You talked about writing in your shed and Mm. I came along to your literary salon. I think it was back in February at Shoreditch House where you were interviewed by Rowan Pelling about writing the book. And, you you know, you talked about that process of of writing in the shed and you actually what really stuck in my mind was you talked about it was such a sort of expelling of, of such kind of awful and painful memories in some ways that, that you were actually sick. You would sometimes go out and mm. be sick in the garden. Yeah, and it wasn't even that I was conscious of holding in a lot of the stuff that is in the book. Um, it's just that when I sat down to write, a lot of it was just sort of hovering very, very close to um, the top of, of, of how I felt. And and um, it felt like I was channeling a lot of the time. And then 
I would sort of sit there and bang away at the keyboard for hours and hours and hours and hours. And then there were these moments where I'd just get up and have to run out of my shed ah. into the garden to be sick. It wasn't that, yeah. it was just very urgent, you know. Gosh. And that's catharsis in the truest sense of the yeah. word. It's, yes. it's actual catharsis. And um, I didn't expect to feel that way. I, did, I thought I had lots of therapy. I'm not totally, totally messed up, you know. Um, I, I thought, you know, but I wasn't. I was actually, you know, to get to the emotional truth of it, to be able to share the emotional truth on the page, I had to relive really traumatic experiences. I had to relive, you know, my stepfather trying to drown me. I had to, mm -hmm. to relive all kinds of horrible violence and betrayal and abuse. And to do that, I had to go there, you know, and that was really hard. Mm. What have the responses been um, to the book from people close to you, like, say, your sister, who mm. you're incredibly protective of throughout the book? I mean, what, what did she feel about it? My wee sister was um, surprised by a lot of what happened because um, our sort of stepfather um, was very violent and I would I would take a lot of the heat for her. Yeah, yeah. So, so actually she wasn't aware of a lot of it. So was um, it a shock? It was a shock, yeah. yeah. It was a shock to her, it was a shock to my mum, it was a shock to my dad. My dad hasn't read it, actually, and I don't think he, he's going to because he said he doesn't think he can kind of cope with it. Right. Um, but, um, but, you know, the, the, it's amazing what you don't know what happens in your own house. You grow up in the same house as somebody, you don't yeah. know what happens. And right now people <laughs> are listening and they're listening at home and, you know, you don't necessarily know everything that's happening there. Right. And um, what is happening now in the area where you grew up? Do you go back there? What What is that area like now? Because obviously the, the industry, mm. the steelworks, like you said, closed down. And I love the descriptions of the old cement works, the sippy the as Sipper well. X, like a, yeah. um, It's like a, a, a sort of a moon, a dusty yeah. moon where the cement works was. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in a very sort of post-industrial landscape and it is, it, well, or at the time industrial. It's all gone. Yeah. I drove back there recently and... Um, I was lost because there were new roads right. and the things that I'd <laughs> navigated by, these gigantic steel towers and the cooling towers, had all gone. So it had come, the landscape was completely changed and um, and you'd never know it was there. You'd never know it was there. And that's one of the things I wanted to do in this book was to kind of capture this unique time and this unique place because it's gone. And I remember as a kid growing up and having this amazing second sunset every night when the sky would be red and yeah. orange and white. And from that was the from the steel furnaces yeah. being emptied. Yeah. And it was bright enough that you could read by. And I really remember <laughs> that really clearly. And there are kids growing up there now who have never seen that and who don't know that that happened. Yeah. And that, I think, is sad. Only the one sunset. Only the one. And I remember yeah. when that happened, feeling really aggrieved. Yeah. Maggie took away our second sunset. I hated her for that. <laughs> <laughs> That's really interesting, isn't it? Um, and how did you feel when, when Maggie died then? What, what did that resonate? What did that mean to you? I think um, I'd been sort of weirdly possessive of her um, because I'd been writing about her impact on my life and mm. my family and my community for a long time. And having worked at the Times and, and lots of other newspapers, I knew that the obituaries were already prepared. You know, yeah. the people on the right were ready to say she's the best thing that's happened to this country. The people on the left were ready to say she's the worst thing that's happened to this country. And actually, that's very simplistic and I think naive. The truth is somewhere in between. She did lots of bad things. She did some good things. Mm. You know, let's 
let's be honest about that. And so I, when, when I got the news, I got all these text messages from people going, she's dead. Oh, my God, she's dead. She's dead. She's dead. And I was thinking, who? 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 <laughs> and then it sort of sunk in. And I just thought, oh, my God, all hell is going to break loose now. Mm. And I was also prepared to be really bored by those pre-received um, opinions. Um, but, I mean, that week in my life, I did, like, over 40 interviews. Yeah. And in that one week, my head yeah. was just spinning. Um you know, sort of talking about it. And people, you know, it upset people that I was, you know, on both sides. You know, my views upset people on both sides because, mm. you know, I just want to be honest. I think it's really important to be honest. And honesty isn't always clean cut. No, know? no. I mean, I think if, you, if you're a leader, you're probably... Never going to please everybody all the no. time, are you? I mean, we you mentioned Blair briefly, of course, and mm. I mean he's possibly now more hated than Thatcher. Yeah, yeah, um, and certainly I feel he did a lot more good, but I think perhaps the things that he did that were bad were were, were, were even worse. So yes, yeah. you know, it's a kind of balancing act. But um, it was a really interesting time for the country. I think when somebody like that dies, it makes everybody look back. It's like your granny dies; you look back at your childhood. You know, yes, it's yes. a sort of nostalgia that's involved in it. I, I want to get a realization that we have all got older and we have grown up. I yeah. suppose she, she's gone. You know, yeah. and there's a sort of sense that she might have been there forever. She seemed. I mean, when she walked out of that bombing, I remember the Brighton bombing. She walked out of the ashes of that hotel, and I remember my mum saying, "What will it take? What will it take yeah. to kill this woman? Why will she not die?" You know, indestructible. And, uh, you know, she was she was like a Terminator or a cyber woman. She you was know? then, wasn't she? And, and but, now she's yeah. she became this old lady, and now she's yeah. dead. Yeah. You know, you know. I remember seeing her coffin, thinking, "She's in there." Very weird. Yes. And it's amazing how I was talking to somebody about the sort of succession of leaders and how John Major always gets forgotten that, mm. that he obviously was there immediately afterwards. But mm. And for a long time he was I there. Know, I know, actually. It yeah. was a good few years, but, but we always kind of forget um, about that. Well, tell us a bit about what perhaps you've got planned next. Is there, is there another book in development? Or? I haven't had time to develop another book. Right. I've, done, no, I've, done, so I've done hundreds of events since yeah. this one happened and I've been talking to all these people and, and loving actually just talking to people right. and finding yeah. out their stories. And So I'm teaching a Guardian UEA masterclass in memoir. That's every Wednesday and I'm enjoying that. And I'm, I'm just about to sign the contract um, for the TV rights for this book. So ah. Maggie and Me is about to become a TV series oh amazing which is really exciting so and that's a whole other world of stuff to think about and do and be excited by do we so. know anything what channel it's going to be on um, well I'm not allowed to say because no, I haven't no. they're they going to do all that but the production yeah. company and, and the broadcaster are, are, are going to do all that but it's really I mean I met lots and lots of film people but I actually think that television is a bit more exciting than than, than, than film and particularly yeah. for a story that's complicated you I, know. Th I think it would really work for this yeah so you, <laughs> you'll get to see someone playing you that would be really creepy and weird at different, <laughs> at different ages as well yeah, really different ages. So I think be probably the, the gayest thing in the world is to cast your own mother in in, in the <laughs> biopic of you. Um, so I'm kind of looking forward to, to doing that. I'd love Anne-Marie Duff to be my mum. Oh, that would yeah. be amazing. And what about Mary the Canary? <gasps> who could she be? Who could she oh, be? I'll have oh, to goodness. think about that. Maybe, maybe, maybe Michelle Thingy, who won um, X Factor. You know the singer Michelle thing Michelle McMahon Manus, Ma really? Manus, yeah, <laughs> she, she 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 got a bit of a you know a wag and and uh, I could I could see that happening maybe she's wow. got the voice for it. Mary the Canary, of course, being the woman that your father yeah my um, dad's partner goes who is a who is a nurse by day and a country and western singer by night. <laughs> yes, yeah. very interesting character. <laughs> I love that bit you read at your literary salon about um, very sad part actually about going home in yeah. the snow and you seeing a different footprint. Yeah. Uh, Mary Canary's footprint. 
print was Seeing like a, high heels. a can. Um, I can't remember how you described it. A can it. and a pencil. A can and a pencil. That's right. Yeah. Because my mum doesn't wear high heels despite being tiny. Yeah. And um, and yeah, and I didn't I didn't know who this who this footprint belongs to. That was kind of the first I got first hint I got of her. Yes, yes. Well, it's amazing to talk to you, and I'm sure we could and and, and would talk. Um, Far more, but perhaps just give a quick plug to the Literary Salon and who's coming up there. Well, we have the next UK Literary Salon, because we've been doing lots abroad, um, is in February, February 17th um, in London. um, And it'll be with Armistead Maupin. Oh, that is exciting. I'm yeah. glad I asked you that. Yeah, with How his Anna Magical book, yeah, <gasps> which is going to be incredible. Wow, and I think so what's ho- the date? February? February 17th. So if you join the Facebook group, which is yeah. called Shoreditch House Literary Salon, um, um, then you can you can join the group and then we'll be sending out details about tickets on there. But it's definitely February the 17th oh. and it's definitely Armistead. Amazing. And I'm definitely excited about it. I'm so excited I might actually wee. Oh, that's, <laughs> that is so exciting. And I'm, I'm, really, I'm really glad I asked you I'm about glad that. you asked as well, I thought you knew. I thought that was a leading question. But oh, no, no you didn't. I didn't actually. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> thrilling. Quite, quite it's thrilling. It's thrilling. He's over for a week. I'm doing an event with Gaze the Ward, who I love, yeah. at the British Library on the 10th of February. That, unfortunately, is sold out. But we oh, haven't released okay. tickets for the 17th yet, and, and, and we will do that. And I think it's going to be a great night. Uh, and Tales of the City is in my book. You know, Tales of the City were the first gay books that I bought. Oh, so, yes, yes, So of it's course. a really lovely kind of tying up um, for me. It'll be amazing ah. to meet him. Yeah, I think for me it was the sort of gay TV programmes. So oranges that. are not the only fruit. And, yes, uh, gay time TV. Did you remember that? <laughs> yes, yes. Yes, with Rhoda. Rhoda, Rhoda, Rhoda Cameron Rhoda, yes. interviewing um, Sophie Ward was quite an iconic <laughs> moment for many young lesbians like me and my girlfriend Wendy, who's going to be going to be chatting shortly. Well, Damien, um, all the best with it all. Thank um, you. I'm sure lots of our listeners will, um, if they've not already read the book, check that out um, and follow you on Twitter and all of. That, all of that kind of thing. But thanks so much for finally making it to us in South London. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure.